You thought that you could have it all And life could be a ball But you fell and scabbed your knee Now you can be Uh, good morning. Good morning, everyone. This is Derek, uh, the recovering CEO. Happy to be here. And today I am here with James Balmer, uh, the retired president of Dawn Inc., which operates the Dawn Farm Treatment Center and support facilities for individuals with drug and alcohol problems. Mr. Balmer is in the human services field for more than 48 years and is considered an international expert in the field of addictions. Uh, Mr. Balmer's visionary work at Dawn Farm has been cited by experts in the professional addiction treatment and medical community. He's currently writing a book on the history of Dawn Farm and the importance of mission in nonprofit work. Jim resides in Ypsilanti with his beautiful wife, Martha. He has four grown children and five grandchildren. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. All right. So tell us, tell our listeners, how long have you been sober? Oh, I've been sober uh, 50 years last august so so dry i could burst into flame <laughs> that's awesome man that's a long time 50 years uh what's the secret what's the secret to such long-term sobriety uh well don't drink and don't die uh those are those are key uh i mean and well, for uh give up i mean uh i, I told somebody just this week that uh uh, I went to my first A meeting uh, sometime July, twelve uh, step meeting in July of uh, nineteen seventy one, and uh, and actually, uh, I I was sitting in a parking lot outside of a Presbyterian church, uh, smoking a cigarette, sitting on the hood of my car, waiting for some friends, under the influence, and a guy came up to me and he said. I said, I don't know what's wrong with you, uh, but you're, uh, I won't tell, I won't say what he said, but he said, you're, uh, you're not, you're not well. And, uh, and he said, I'm going into this uh, meeting. Uh, would you like to come with me? And I'd never, this is 1971, uh, recovering community in the United States in 1971 was about 300,000 people. And I said, okay. And I went into this room with people who were old, you know, <laughs> compared to me, they were really old. Uh, and, uh, and they went around, they uh, said people announced themselves as being alcoholics. And at the time, I didn't realize that I was both an alcoholic and an addict. And so I said, I'm a, I'm a drug addict. And, uh, and I didn't say, I barely remember anything that day, but I walked out that night and I remember thinking to myself, if I do what these people tell me, I might survive. Wow. And, uh, and that was really my sort of turning point. I was well aware that I was uh, unable to quit on my own. And I had tried and, and I had a couple of bad hospitalizations and committed to a nut ward and, you know, all sorts of stuff. Uh, but something I saw among those people uh, got my attention and I came back. Then wow. I came back, and then I came back, and eventually, an actually funny story. Uh, I was about a year sober, and uh, my sponsor came to me and said, 
I think you're coming up on a year. So we want to celebrate. Want to give you a cake and and uh, it gave me it gave me this. I don't know if I can give it. Put it. Yeah, there's a little. Yeah, I see it. Uh, a token, yeah. Old old time token. Uh, uh, and they said, "When was your the day of your last drink and drug?" It's really hot because <laughs> I was still very damaged. And so they had, to, they had to figure out, well, when did he start looking better? And they decided that sometime around mid-July, I started looking like I was paying attention. Uh, and they added a month. Uh, and so my anniversary date is August 15th. I'm the only person I've ever met who had their anniversary date set by the group. So... At, at, awesome. a year, at a year clean and sober, I was hardly uh, prepared to face life, but, you know, it took me a while. I wow. had really damaged myself by the time I was gotten to the recovering community. So, Well, you've been sober. You got sober one year before I was born. So that's pretty that's amazing. That's a comfort. Yeah. And we're kind of birthday buddies because my sobriety date is August 13th. So I knew that actually. Yeah. 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 I only have 25 years though, so you're 25 well, I, ahead of me. I can't get away with, I've attempted to tell people that I got sober when I was like six, but <laughs> no one believes me, so. Right. So when, I, wow. when, I had, when I had more hair, that's when I could pull it off, but not anymore. So. No, that's amazing. Congrats. And that's a perfect example of uh, serendipity or when the uh, student is ready, the teacher will appear. You seemed ready to come in, in a way, right? You know. I had very low expectations when I first got sober. Uh, I really, I, I, it's, a fine, it's not funny, but it's funny. Uh, I had, I hoped that I could get to the point where I could drive down the freeway and not want to drive into bridge abutments every day. I was, uh, yeah, I wanted to kill myself every day for a long time, a long time in AA. Wow. But that feeling uh, obviously went away, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I tell you know, people say, "Well, wow, you know, fifty years." I say, "Well, yeah, you know, why do I? Why am I still here?" I had a desire to drink or use drugs in a long, long time. Uh, but I remember what it's like to never not be afraid. I remember that. Uh, that's sort of seared in my memory. And and you know, the day is young, but I'm not afraid today, and I wasn't afraid yesterday. You know, I have problems just like anybody else, but but I don't live in a state of fear. You know, I don't live in a state of fear. Um, I have uh, I have hope for all sorts of stuff. I will say, you know, over the over the years, it's been nice to be a part of this. I don't know how many millions of recovering people there are now, uh, but uh, you know, everyone who was there when I got sober, clean and sober, they're all dead. I think the closest in terms of a peer, someone who I met early in recovery is about six years uh, uh, after I got sober. So, okay. Uh, all right. Uh, but I'm, I'm having a good time. I'm getting old. I'm getting a little creaky, you know, and uh, I'm now retired after 50 plus years in the field. But I'm still having a good time. Oh, yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about uh, Don Farm, the treatment center you helped to found, sort of yep. how it began and where, where is it at today now that, you, now that you're retired? Well, it's, hopefully it's in the same place. It's, it's, there were four of us. There were four of us. Uh, 
all in recovery, all in relatively new recovery. Gary Archie, who was the sort of the guy with the original idea, uh, has been sober 56 years, something like that, 57. Uh, and, and we were part of the fledgling young people in recovery. Uh, it was, it's hard to imagine, but the community I live in, uh, when I got, when I moved here a year sober, I, I probably had, I had it somewhere. Uh, the entire meeting guide and phone list was typewritten on a half sheet of paper, right? Wow. All of the meetings in Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti and all of the support calls for 12-step calls and stuff like that, half sheet of paper. I still, I do have it, but um, it's hard to convey how small, I mean, Ann Arbor is a large community and there were, I think, six 12-step meetings in Ann Arbor when I moved here, and two in Ypsilanti. So, and it, so it's hard to it's hard to convey how small it was. You know, we'd have an annual meet, annual gathering of people in the recovering community, and two hundred people would show up. And now there's you know, you know, there are gather there are international gatherings of recovering community that have bring you know seventy five thousand people into an arena, and it's it's hard to convey convey how different that is. You know. Uh, and I mean, it's great. It's great. You know, uh, you can go anywhere and encounter recovery, encountered recovering people. I've been all over the world, you know, uh, I had, I think I uh, told you I had the opportunity about 20 some years ago, uh, to go to Kazakhstan, uh, where there was precisely one 12 step meeting that had about 15 started by a German Catholic priest, uh, and uh, the priest was so excited, he took six guys and he started teaching them uh, 12-step recovery and they all got sober and he was so excited that he decided to do a Bible study with them and they all got drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so I got this message from this missionary society saying, what, what, did, what did he do wrong? I said, give these guys the, the 12-step book and leave them alone. <laughs> and thankfully he did and they all got sober again. Uh, and I had the opportunity to walk into that meeting in Karaganda, Kazakhstan, which is kind of having trouble right now. Uh, and the idea of being in a place where, you know, the ninth largest country on earth, right? And a couple of guys got a hold of this book. And the next, and now, you know, there's quite a number of meetings across this large uh, Eurasian uh, uh, tundra. Uh, uh, but the idea of, of going to a place where no, you know, 20 guys in a room was it. That's amazing. Now where I live, there's hundreds of meetings and hundreds of gatherings of everywhere you go. So, right. Did, um, did you meet, I have to ask, did you meet uh, Borat? No. And <laughs> interesting commentary. I met lots of, lots of Kazakhs. I'm still in touch with people in Kazakhstan. I, I'm Facebook friends with a number of my translators and some other folks. Uh, and, you know, I spent, I, <laughs> I went for a trip there for almost a month. And it was the longest three and a half weeks of my life because it, it pretty third world country. Lovely people, but, uh, uh, but, and, but half Russians and half Kazakhs. Uh, 
but Borat has no Kazakhs in. There are there are no ethnic Kazakhs in the movie. Oh, in that movie? <laughs> in the in the there's a picture of a Kazakh uh a guy in the in the uh, the what you call the credits at the end of the Borat first Borat movie, but no others. None in the actual they're all Rus- Russians or something, you know. But there are no ethnic Kazakhs in the whole movie. Okay, I did not know that. <laughs> um, well, so, so so tell me, uh, is an alcoholic from 1971 different than an alcoholic from 2021? What's the difference? Uh, oh, oh, boy. Well, people don't think we're fiends. I mean, honestly. I, yeah, it's, it's, again, it's one of those, it's, it's hard to convey. Uh, people say, well, did you go to treatment? And I said, well, no, because there wasn't any treatment. There was a program near me in Detroit called uh, Sacred Heart that didn't take IV drug addicts, and I'm a recovering IV drug addict. Um, uh, and, uh, and there was a place called Synanon, which you got to look in uh, history books because it's no longer around. But it was a uh, cult. It was a it prescribed marriages and shaved heads and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and the other option was I could have gone to the federal narcotics farm in Lexington, Kentucky. And the problem was is that it was an adjunct to the federal prison system. So you could go in, but you couldn't leave at will. And I thought that was <laughs> a bad deal. I was deranged with my addiction, but I thought that would be a bad deal to go that sounds scary. Yeah. And I'd heard about it, and there were lots of great there were things going on there. There were great jazz bands because some of the great jazz players were also heroin addicts and they ended up in Lexington. Miles Davis, Jerry Mulligan, all these guys, really, really great jazz players. And they had apparently house bands that were the real deal. But you couldn't leave without, you know, you got committed and then, yeah. So, Hmm. and so I didn't think going to treatment was an option, you know. Um, and of course, now there's ton, there's there's less than there was 30 years ago, which is a whole other story. Mm-hmm. But uh, but you can get you know you can get treatment, and because of the ensuing years and science and research and and growth of treatment, there's considerably less stigma. Um, you know the the culture the stigma in culture has changed dramatically. You know, mm-hmm. and you know, part of it is also part of it. Access to drugs and just culture changes and everything. It's very rare now to find a family that doesn't have an addict or an alcoholic in their family, extended family. You know, uh, and and you know, people. Uh, there was a lot of addiction in the family beforehand, but nobody ever talked about it. And now people talk about it, and so mm-hmm. that sort of the the pursuit of uh, reducing. Uh, uh, stigma is one thing, and the sort of natural evolution of uh, talking about it is has changed. I I remember about forty some years ago when Martha and I got married, uh, and we we went to visit her 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 extended family on the west side of the state, and we were talking to people and everything. And I had the opportunity to sit down with her her uh, uh, maternal grandfather, right. And I, I loved him. He was a wonderful guy. Alcoholic, right? And I said to her, driving back, I said, you didn't tell me your grandfather was an alcoholic. And she looked at me like, what? <laughs> I said, he's great, but he's an alcoholic. 
<laughs> she was kind of dumbfounded because she didn't know. Well, did she know? It's a good question. In families where people don't talk about that, does everybody know? Well, probably, but right. And of course, now it's much more. You know, I have people find out who I am and what I've done for a living and everything in my recovery. And they say, I got a, co- I got a cousin or I got a, you know, that happens all the time. So, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so in that respect, stigma has diminished. There's still tons of it. Right. Uh, and there's still a tremendous amount of judgment, you know, and, and proof positive. Uh, I tell people all the time, 30, I mentioned 30 years ago, 30 years ago, roughly, you could open up the yellow pages and go, go to alcohol and drug treatment and flip it open and go through page after page after page of treatment centers that you could call up and say, I'm so-and-so, I have an alcohol and drug problem. And they would say, come on in and we'll bill your insurance. And if your insurance doesn't cover, we'll bill local public funding and you'll get 28 days of quality treatment. Some of them were better than others, but there were a lot of them. At one point, more than 30 years ago, every community hospital in the United States had an alcohol and drug treatment center. Washington <laughs> County, uh, every hospital in Washington County, and two, of the, two large hospitals, but there was a hospital in Ypsilanti that was so small that it's no longer a hospital, and it had a 20-bed treatment center. And you could, and you literally... Uh, if they couldn't bill insurance for you, it was ba- they were all 20. So you may have seen the movie with Sandra Bullock, 28 days. Yeah. You know why it was 28 days? Why? Well, it wasn't because it was a clinical model. It was because it was four weeks of Blue Cross Blue Shield or Connecticut General. The, the lengths of stay were crafted around what insurance would cover back then. And of course, then managed care hit and burned it to the ground. 90% of the field that existed Back in those days of, of 28 days, they're all gone. So it's, a, it's, it's actually another commentary on why the heck is Don Farm still around? You know, because we were the poor relations. You know, when the farm started, we rented a farmhouse, a dump. There was a marijuana plant grown by the back door. And it had, you know, it had been a dope house. You know, when, when Gary got wrangled Jack and I to come out to that house, we walked in. And looked at each other and looked at him and said, excuse me, what are you thinking? <laughs> and, uh, and they actually were mad at me for a while because they wanted me to move in among the original staff. Jack and Gary and Beanie Archie moved in. Uh, and I got a job at CMH, at Community Mental Health, that paid money, you know. And I had been, uh, I'd been in the crisis center movement in the late 60s, so I had some... some uh, uh, some cred from the, that era. I was part of the one of the first uh, uh, crisis centers, and certainly in Michigan, uh, it's still still around. Uh, and I just i I wanted to go someplace where I I could be, where I wouldn't be guessing about whether or not I had anything going for me in the field. Mm-hmm. And so I took this job at CMH instead, and went on Don Farm's board in '73. And then came back as the clinical director in 1983, 10 years later. So, okay. Uh, yeah, and the rest is history. Yeah. Um, right. So would you say there's any difference between an addict and an alcoholic? Uh, 
Uh, or do they blend? An alcoholic, an alcoholic will steal your wallet. An addict will steal your wallet and help you look for it. Okay. <laughs> you know, Never heard of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a degree of sociopathy related to uh, non-alcohol addiction because you could you could be an alcoholic and not ever break the law, and uh, that kind of, that's completely untrue with most addictions. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've heard people talk over the years. I've read lots and lots of journal articles about the degree of sociopathy associated with addiction. I mean, it, it makes sense because you really have to. Uh, you really have to subjugate any kind of meaningful value system to be an an active, like an IV drug addict. Uh, just because you make, you know, hard and Ill, and often illegal decisions about your life every day. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, have I you think noticed are 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 drug addicts more sociopathic than alcoholics? I don't, I don't, know. probably not. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're really talking about a hijacked brain. You know, your limbic pathway, your mesolimbic pathway gets hijacked and it just makes you do, you know, there are lots of things that will make a person do stupid stuff. Adolescence does that. Uh, you know, so, so, you know, in terms of one being more disturbed than another, I've seen some pretty disturbing alcoholics. Uh, you know, and of course, you know, I, you know, I in my career, I've seen some pretty impressive alcoholics. Uh, the highest blood alcohol level of anybody I've seen here was in the 70s. And 0.0, 0.40 is considered the death threshold. Wow. You know, uh, there's a friend of mine who's in recovery, who's been sober uh, 20 some years, and she was a health professional. Uh, and she was pretty, she'll hate it if she hears about this. Uh, she, uh, uh, and, and you know who she is, <laughs> but she got picked up, uh, in a suburb near here and nobody thought she was drunk. They just thought maybe something was wrong with her. Like maybe she'd had, had a stroke or something, uh, hit her head, uh, cause she was, something was odd. And so they, they came in the cops doctor and they put her in an ambulance, took her to Botsford hospital. Uh, it's just to make sure she was okay. And it turned out she was an executive in the healthcare system of some consequence. Uh, and, and they're trying to figure out what's wrong with her. And they're, and she's there for like 90 minutes before anybody says, you know, have we considered doing a drug and alcohol, a blood test on this woman? <laughs> and no, they said no, because she was perfectly lucid, conversational, had a literacy in the field. So she was able to have a, functional conversation and they drew blood and her blood alcohol more than 90 minutes after they picked her up was 0.575, which is really, (laughs) which is, that explained a lot. And boy, they crack out the, 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 uh, 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 Foley catheter and the, and the vent line. I mean, they thought we were going to lose this person. Of course she has so much tissue tolerance, you know, she could, no one knew she was drunk. Wow. That's alcohol. You know, yeah, and that's you know when you people talk about alcoholism as a behavioral disorder without any biological underpinnings, I have to do is see somebody be able to consume a level of alcohol that would kill a room full of people, right? So, 
that's you can't you can't fake that you can't you know there are a lot of things like that where uh it's like blackouts normal people don't have blackouts normal people don't have extended loss of memory but alcoholics do so mm-hmm. uh, interesting so jim you've seen a lot over your years have you you know, the recovering CEO, we're talking a lot to people who are in business, right? And, yeah. you know, I'd like to raise their awareness and maybe help them from losing their careers and losing their yeah. families. Have you seen people who were successful in business run into trouble with drinking and drugs? And could you share maybe a story or anything from your experience? Oh, well, there's there's lots of them. I mean, there's lots of great stories. Well, yeah, of course, yes, there's lots of occasions. I mean, there are a lot of people I know in town who had, who, who got sober and had fantastic who who were in the you know in some kind of executive position and and alcohol brought them down and they got sober and started working a a personal recovery program and they did far greater than they had before because they weren't hampered by drinking you know so running joke that alcoholics who um who get sober are unstoppable i mean you know because they happen to have an enormous amount of willpower. The, the whole notion that alcoholics lack willpower is completely untrue. Alcoholics, if they have a problem, is, is that they have too much willpower, right? That they really believe, uh, self, the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous books refers to self-will run riot. They say the alcoholic is a victim of the delusion that they can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only they manage well, right, and that really is the grand delusion of addicts and alcoholics: is that uh, if I were to stay out of my way, uh, I can fix this. Right? Uh, and it's almost and, and the hard part of it is that it's almost always true. They're not drunk. Their capacity to manage their life and everybody else's life is actually pretty good. Uh, it gets them into trouble, uh, but you know, I, I like I say, I know lots of people who had terrible problems with alcohol and got sober. And they say it was the best thing I ever did for my career. Because sober, I'm 10 times as effective as I was drunk. And I was pretty effective when I was drunk. You know, you, know, you hear these stories about, I know a friend in town who's, I guess he's up north now, but, and he's been sober, I don't know, 35 years, right? And he was an executive of some consequence before he got sober, you know? And he always says, he's, he always says, uh, after I got sober, I, I figured out how to beat the Japanese in the technical field he was in. He wow. says, sobriety was the ticket for me to beat the Japanese at their own game. <laughs> and I've heard awesome. like that lots of times. You know. That's a good testimonial. I just, it's funny, just last week, I was talking to a kid who came through the farm. You know, I run into alumni, you know, we had, I don't know, more than 100,000 people go through the farm in my wow. ten- uh, probably sizably more than that. Uh, uh, and, and I, this, this kid I ran into and I said, what's going on with you? And, uh, and I remember, you know, I, I, one of the things I did when I was at the farm is I kept doing intakes. I did admission interviews because I came out of the clinical background. Uh, and when I became the CEO, I didn't want to, I, I loathed the idea of being separated from the folks who were helping. And so I probably, I bet I admitted uh, 80, 90% of everybody who came into residential treatment in the last 30 some years. 
uh, just keep my hand in. So I knew a lot. I, you know, I didn't want people to come through the farm and not know who I am. But this, this guy ran into this kid and says, so what are you doing? <laughs> I'm in my second semester at law school. And you would have had to have known this, the untreated person who I saw the day he came in to residential treatment. And let's just say the notion of him ever going to law school was beyond the pale, you know. And, and he wouldn't mind my sharing it. There was a kid who I admitted, and I guess I didn't admit it. He came into the farm before I got there. But um, uh, scrawny little guy came in without a high school diploma. So we talked about wanting to get him a GED. Uh, and we did get him a GED. And that, it was easy. And then he went and got his, finished his actual high school degree. And then he, he went to undergrad. He got sober at the farm. He was a funny kid because he, uh, he was, I, occasionally you run into somebody who's got a particular acumen for chemistry in recovery. And so, you got to watch out because they can end up doing drugs that don't exist in the PDR. Um, right. And he was like that brilliant guy. I don't think because he was so impaired when he came to the farm, it'd be hard to pick him as a super smart, but m maybe the smartest guy I ever met. Uh, but he, uh, he went back to school and he got a bachelor's degree. And then he thought, I, I want to be a helper. They want to help people. And so he went back to school uh, at uh, uh, at your your alma mater, MSU. MSU. He uh, uh, got his MS, MSW there, and he went into clinical work. And after a couple of years, a few years of uh, doing clinical work, he said, "You know, I think I can be of more service uh, if I get a if I become a physician." And he became a part of the fledgling uh, medical uh, degree process. He and he ended up uh, getting a DO. And then he went back to school and became a psychiatrist. And eventually he became Don Farm's psychiatrist. Wow. And unfortunately, he became ill and died some years ago. Uh, but uh, he, had, he was the, arguably the worst drug addict I've ever known. And he ended up being the, medical, the psychiatric medical director at the University of Michigan and at Don Farm and at the local community mental health center. He was at. And he helped a lot of people. Uh, and he helped thousands and thousands of people. Uh, and he was very uh, uh, demure about it. He felt like he was just being of service. Right? And no one would have ever predicted it on the day that he worked into treatment. And I That's have amazing. so many stories. That's why, you know, I would say, you know, I haven't had a desire to drink or use in a long time. I, but boy, uh, uh, go into the recovering community and hang out with recovering people. It's a lot of entertainment for a buck. Uh, and, uh, and I have seen I, and just countless miracles. People who, by all rights, should not be alive, much less wearing their own clothes and, you know, getting up and going to work and, and being of service, being of value to other people. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I consider it a tremendous gift. Well, I, you know, I kind of know that feeling because, you know, I taught at Michigan State for 12 years and my students would come up to me. I'd see them all over the country and they would say, hey, you know, professor. And, and they'd tell me their stories. And I, people must come up to you out of the blue and say, do you remember me? And like tell you stories, right? Yeah, I ran into a guy recently uh, at one of the, the Home Depot, home furnishing stores. He walked up to me. We're both wearing masks. 
And he said, uh, I said, Mr. Palmer. I said, I'm sorry. And he pulled down his mask so I could see his face and I remembered him. And he described to me, he said, yeah, I'm out of transitional housing, uh, but I, I got a place with a couple of guys and we're doing this, blah, 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 blah. And he described this, this sort of prosaic success story, right? Uh, I mean, this guy came into the farm, right? went through 90 days at the farm, did six months of aftercare and spent a year in sober housing, right? Then he moved in, he got himself a job, and then he got himself a better job. And he and some guys got an apartment and they're doing the deal, right? Except that all of that happened during a pandemic. He was admitting, he was admitted to treatment under isolation, having gone through our detox in isolation, right? He completed his treatment during the pandemic. So he never physically went to a 12-step meeting or any other outside support until after he left treatment. It's like, ah. oh my goodness. <laughs> and, and I just stood there looking at him and, and, and I was moved because I thought, how does this happen? You know, I mean, you know, you think there's a kind of a linear model for how people uh, get better. And this, this was there are a lot of treatment centers that broke apart during the last couple of years because, and certainly they're tre tremendous tumult. Uh, but this guy went through detox, went into residential, completed residential, went through aftercare, got into transitional, completed transitional housing, and is doing the deal, going, suiting up, going to work every morning, happy to be sober. That's amazing. Doesn't get old. Yeah. You know, and people say you you go to you still are involved in the recovering community with fifty years of continuous sobriety. Oh yeah, are you kidding? <laughs> right? Yeah, that's great. My hey, my friend, my friend who you know says it's a lot of entertainment yeah. for a buck. It is. It's it's good entertainment. It's uh and it's fun to see people. Right, I love the community. Everywhere I go, I see people from recovery. It's wonderful. Yep. Um, so here's a question that I think people have. You know, can people still recover if they don't believe in God? Sure. Sure. I didn't believe in God when I got sober. And in yeah. fact, I'll tell you my, story, my God story. I was a couple of years, probably a year and a half to two years sober. And it's a funny story because I, I won't give the, the broad details, but I, I was, uh, well, maybe I, was, I was young. I had hair down in my waist, 1973. And I was still an atheist. I was the worst kind of atheist because I was an existential atheist. I was reading Benedict de Spinoza. And <laughs> it was painful. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and I was 12-stepping a young lady who had about two months of sobriety, which, by the way, is a mistake. 12-stepping meaning trying to carry the message, not my job. Uh, and uh, my sponsor came up and he said, See, I'd like you to like, like leave the young woman alone until they're like sober. <laughs> so, uh, and I and 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 I had been professing to her some how she didn't have to believe in God; she could believe in a door a doorknob or something. And he says, and frankly, he said, you're not really in any position to to talk about spirituality uh, with any uh, authority to new people <laughs> in recovery. He said so. He said, matter of fact. He said, I would like you to go home tonight and go to your room and close the door and get on your knees and thank God for another day of sobriety. And then tomorrow morning, when you get up, 
I want you to first thing, get on your knees and ask God to keep you sober for another day. And I looked him in the eye and I said, I don't believe in God. And he never broke his stare. And he said, I don't care. He said, I didn't ask you to believe in God. So sure. I just, you know, <laughs> I, you know. Well, you know, one of the things I learned about uh, uh, 12-step recovery was that you, a lot of it, you have to act on faith. You have to act like you're a, like you're a sober person. <laughs> you have to act like you know what you're doing. And eventually, you actually know what you're doing. Um, and so I didn't believe in God, but I did believe in my sponsor, you know. Uh, and though, even though he's a little terse about it, uh, I went home and I went upstairs and I closed the door and I, I got on my knees. And I was, I was like, I was one of those atheists that you didn't like, you know, as I would, you know, I just would, I leaned on people who believed in God spiritually. Um, and I grew up that way. You know, my father was an atheist. Um, and, but I got on my knees and I thank God for another day of sobriety, although it was some kind of ridiculous prayer because I really didn't know anything about it. Uh, and the next morning I did the same thing. And I didn't believe in God, but I did believe in this guy who had helped me. Right? And for a while, that was all that mattered. Was I willing to follow someone else's direction? You know? And it had less to do with particular spirituality as much as it did with learning to listen to somebody else. You know, and people say, well, how have you stayed sober? Say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty uh, egocentric guy, but I learned in recovery how to listen to another human being. You know, and I remember saying years ago, my late sponsor, who I was my sponsor for 38 years. And, uh, and, and I said, if this guy came to me and said, I think your job is threatening your sobriety, uh, I think you should seriously consider doing something else. I don't know that I would do it in. 30 seconds, but I would sit down and take it seriously. Mm -hmm. Because I learned, I learned in my recovery to become teachable, right? And to be assured that if all, if my sole point of counsel is my, my head, <laughs> my inner thought, my inner head can stray. And so I need to be accountable. I have a sponsor now who's 30 years less time in recovery than me. Wow. You know, well, you know, I, you know my, my sponsor who was, who had been around longer than me died, you know, I mean, if you get, get sober and you stay sober and you don't, and you don't die, eventually you run out of sponsors. You got to start picking mm -hmm. them. And so, but, but it's not, it's not, a, it's about him, but it's not entire. It's about me. How teachable am I? How willing am I to follow someone else's direction? You know, yeah, uh, Jim, let me comment on that because you talked about if someone told you to, that your job is endangering your sobriety. So I've given that advice to, to someone before when they told me how their job involved taking clients out to strip clubs and running up huge bar tabs with them. And they just yeah. kind of sat there and, and they yeah. paid the tab. And I'm like, that is dangerous. I'm like, you should switch careers. And yeah. they didn't listen to me. He said, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> so maybe I didn't yeah. have no sway. Yeah, well... Right. And, and there are lots of different ways to learn, you know? I mean, I, you know, it, not that I have any great answers. I, I, I lucked out. I think I had a moment of clarity 
that said, if I follow these, if I do what these people tell me, and it's funny because at the time, you know, when I got sober, if you were in the recovering community, you were in your 60s or 70s, right? I mean, it was old. When I say they're all gone, they're all gone. Um, and, and, you know, they, and it was there, they were very different for me, but I had this, what I now believe was a spiritual encounter where I said, I, I thought, I, if I follow these people and do what they tell me, I can survive, you know? Uh, and I had no, boy, talk about low expectations. I had no expectation that I would end up, you know, I had a, I had a great career, you know? I mean, they didn't want me to leave. It's pretty funny that they didn't want me to leave, but, you know, I'm almost 70 years old. You know, they actually, <laughs> my board came to me at one point and said, uh, we'd like to get a ballpark from you uh, on, on your expected retirement. Zero to five years, five to 10 years, or 10 to 15 years. And I started to laugh. I said, wait a minute. I said, you want me here in my 80s? Are you insane? Like, I mean, I, I'm flattered, but come on, right? <laughs> so That's awesome. Uh, so, and, and of course, one of the things I said, well, I'm going to leave before any kind of dementia becomes obvious. <laughs> and people start talking about, geez, when's he going to leave? And I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they did. I don't think they did. But Right, right. Um, all right. So, so we got a few more minutes. So uh, can you tell me what is the number one reason people relapse on alcohol or drugs? Uh, uh, pride. Pride. Not being accountable. You know, I mean, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to live in the light. It's hard to, it's hard to tell on yourself, you know? Uh, if, and, you know, if it was easy, everybody would do it. Uh, uh, having to tell, to, to share what's really going on, you know, to be uh, honest about your, your, your troubles, you know? Uh, and I can, I can relate. I can totally relate. Nobody wants to tell them themselves. Nobody wants to have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know what happened to me? It's funny. I I, I became teachable partly because I was so broken when I first got sober. Um, you know, I'd been committed to a mental institution in Waterbury, Vermont, and I had spent a lot of time on the road. I hitchhiked tens of thousands of miles around the country. Uh, yeah, I lived in a commune. I you know I I did the sort of prototypical hippie, but I'd gotten really sick. I was, I was, uh, uh, I had malnutrition. I'd gotten a really bad case of hepatitis that uh, I had to treat for more than five years after I got clean and sober. So I was broken. And I think that made me teachable. Now it's funny because, oh, 12, 13 years later, I had a job. I was married. I had a kid. I was like doing it, right? I was in the game. And I went not quite a couple of weeks, but more than 10 days without going to a meeting or recovering meeting. And I was, I was living the dream. I was right, right in the middle of it. Uh, it's a sad story because uh, uh, one of the people who had come through the farm, uh, great guy, wonderful guy. Ended up, I stood up in his wedding. He stood up in my wedding. Uh, and, the, and I got, in 80, him in 81. And he eventually came back and worked uh, uh, for the farm. 
and was a therapist and then became the CEO, became the, the president. Uh, and he was about seven and a half years sober. And he, uh, he was playing around at golf. He was wearing a three-piece suit. He had just finished a game of golf with some guys at the country club at Travis Point, not far from here. Uh, and somebody offered him a, a glass of white wine. And, and, and he thought, huh, why the hell not? Okay. And he drank half a glass of white wine and he set it down and he went home. And a couple of weeks went by and he thought, huh, that was easy. And he walked down to a local uh, bar and he had a, a Pabst Blue Ribbon shell of beer. And he went home. No harm, no foul. And it took him about six months before his life burst into flame and they found him drunk. Uh, and they sent him to Hazleton in Minnesota, a town and gown treatment center. Uh, and myself and Jack, who was one of the co-founders of the farm, and I and another guy went and picked him up at the airport a month later. And he got off the plane and we knew he wasn't done. Right? And he started talking about all the great stuff he learned in treatment that he could apply at the farm, not realizing that he was never coming back to the farm. Uh, and he spent the next 14 years trying unsuccessfully to get sober before he overdosed and died. And when he died, my friend Jack and I were the only phone numbers uh, in his wallet where everybody else they called on his behalf said, I don't want to leave me alone. He had burned through everybody he knew except this one guy. And, I, and we went to Chelsea Hospital uh, to say goodbye to him before they turned off the machines. This guy was as smart as anybody I've ever known, helped a lot of people. A week before, two weeks before he died, uh, I used to send stuff to him in the mail just to mess with him. <laughs> you finished? <laughs> just to ruin his day. And he called me up and he said, listen, you bastard. He said, if I go out to a meeting with you, will you will you leave me alone for a while? I said, absolutely, sure. Well, and uh, and we met at a local Chinese restaurant. And then we went to a regular Tuesday night meeting, and I had given a heads up to a handful of people who knew this guy. Uh, and they came to that meeting, so we had a table that was where he was surrounded by people who really loved him, really loved him, and I loved him. Uh, and he shared his sense of despair that he felt that the opportunity for him to find real sobriety again was had left him. And for a long time, I said, anybody can get clean and sober. I don't believe that anymore, right? Because this guy, if there was ever an argument for a guy being able to pull it together, this was the guy. And he died alone in a, on the floor in a house in Chelsea. Hmm. And uh, I, all of us talk, every now and then we run into one another and still miss him, right? Uh, and I believe it's possible that it could have been beyond his grasp at that point, that his, his, his desire to get sober was not enough to overcome his disease, which is tragic, tragic. Mm -hmm. But, uh, this is, you know, I think recovery is one of those things that's extraordinary and expansive and makes people, you know, uh, Really, that makes dramatic changes. I've seen so many miracles in my career. It's just astonishing. Uh, yeah. But I, I believe you can get to the point where you can lose it. 
So, so Jim, I got, I got two more questions. Yeah. Um, and, and I appreciate that last story. It's a little sad. So can you tell me a story about someone that nobody thought could ever get sober and did finally get sober? And what, what was the, the happy story there? I'm sure you've seen that a few times. Oh, I'd have to pick. I'd be hard to pick one. Yeah, I bet. I have seen, <laughs> I have seen so many people show up in, you know, in a jail jumpsuit where they don't have their clothes. <laughs> they would get the clothes. There are, there are too many to count, you know. Uh, I mean, I mean, I sponsor a guy in recovery now who has 44 years of continuous sobriety. Uh, he went through the farm and he was in such bad uh, withdrawal that he was unable to shave off his own beard. So another guy, another resident at the farm shaved off his beard, right? He lives in my neighborhood about four doors down. And, and he's, you know, had a full career and raised kids. I mean, had the, the, the whole dream. He's a wonderful guy. I love the fact that I, I get to go down and knock on his door and we, you know, uh, and there are hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of stories like that. Um, you know, I mean, really the answer, you know, people stick around, you get better. I mean, you really do get better. I mean, for the idea that, that addiction is some kind of death sentence, you know, absolutely not true. You know, there's lots of tragedies, but I have, I've just seen so many people where, you know, that doctor, you know, that doctor died sober, number of years sober, uh, of a, of a respiratory disease, but to see him get sober, he was maybe the worst drug addict I'd ever known. You know, and not only did he get sober, he became a vessel of service for tens of thousands of people along the way. So, that's great. So that's one. What's that's the other? All right, last one. Uh, so what's next for Jim Balmer? How are you going to spend the next 30 years sober? Uh, well, I'm going to uh, spend time with my wife and my kids and my grandkids. I have five grandkids and my son's getting married, so I may have more grandkids, which is very cool. Grandkids are cool. Not so much during the pandemic, but I, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I was made to be a grandpa. So um, I'm, I'm working on, I'm writing a book that I started when I was still at the farm, not realizing. I took a sabbatical about seven, eight years ago. Uh, with the idea of gathering information for this book. And the book is a history of stories about the farm. You've heard a couple, you know, things, there are wonderful things that have happened during the course of the farm. And I've been there for a good piece of it. So I want to get some of the narrative down before I croak and nobody has it anymore. Uh, it started as just that narrative. I traveled around the country. Um, uh, it developed a second piece when I went and talked to people I visited treatment centers all over the United States. Uh, and, and, and in two cases, and, and I wanted to find out about mission because contextually the farm, the farm was the poor relation. When we started at the farm, it was a joke. People were like, You're, you want to live there? It was just really, and over the years, the farm really was the sort of poor cousin and the, you know, and treatment centers rose up and they were all full of oak and ferns and, little funky ass Don farm was for a long time. It's just like, you know, like I say, the, the poor relation. Uh, and we watched the field 
burst into flame and for the most part disappeared. And begging the question, why the heck is the farm still there? Right? And you can talk about mission and values and 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 the and the empowerment of people. There's, I mean, there are things to talk about. Um, but I went around and I talked to John Shorsloff from Betty Ford and I visited the Midnight Mission and I visited all these programs, visited Gould Farm in Massachusetts, 100-year-old treatment center, uh, various places, to, uh, just to see and how did mission extrapolate, you know, and, and I know that. I, believe, I know that organizations that have strong values and strong sense of mission and are com- and are able to engender that mission in positive activities over time uh, are the ones that are still here. And that, I think, is true of the farm. You know, there was a time in the farm when we were struggling and we had a big public meeting. We walked out of that meeting having lost our fear of making a mistake. You know, people often will cover their tracks so that they don't like to show off their their (laughs) errors. And we lost that. We started being more open about our mistakes. And that was one of those things. So so those two things, history of Don Farm, sense of mission, and why are those things important? And then the third piece came after because two of the places I went on my touring around the country uh, we got, I got pretty good at asking questions and I created a narrative and it's all been transcribed and everything. Uh, so I've lots of book, just not compiled. Um, uh, but two places said, I, I said, well, thank you for staying, you know, six, seven hours. I said, thank you for having me. This is an extraordinary expenditure of your time. Uh, I got to go. And they said, <laughs> one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast. He said, how can we get you to stay another day? Right? They said, We'll rent you a hotel room and we'll take care of rearranging your flight. Uh, but we'd like you to stay another day. And in both cases, I couldn't. But I was perplexed. And I mean, I thought, well, I'm a likable guy, but these guys are like spending willing to spend money to keep me around just to ask them questions. And I was perplexed. And, and over time, my wife had gone with me to those and, and we talked about it. And I realized that this was the first time anybody had asked them to share some of their organizational history and, 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 and talk about their mission and why they exist. And, you know, just and, and it's a huge organizational thing, trying to understand how organizations work and all. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and so I realized that I needed to write about that too. And we needed, I needed to write about the development of a narrative, the ability to tell your story. And that the farm has gotten good at. The farm over the last 25 years has gotten better and better and better at telling a story again and again and again and again and again. But one of the, I retired in uh, the beginning of July, and my last official act was to do a, 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 a training about the history of the farm and how mission played a role, because I'd done it hundreds of times over the years. Um, and that that's a key, you know, that's a key, being able to define what makes you tick. And, uh, so so that's what the book's going to be about. And now I have time to work. I've been writing, but that's awesome. slow work. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what a story it's been, Jim. And, uh, you know, I want to say thank you for your service. You are a joy to talk to. And, um, 
thanks for being on the Recovering CEO podcast. I think people will listen to this and enjoy it. And uh, hopefully I'll see you around, you know, another, another day sober. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Well, stay safe. Stay safe to all your uh, listeners. All right. Have a great day, Jim. Take care. You thought that you could have it all. And life could be a ball. But you fell and scabbed your knee. Now you can.